Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, midwives, one of the whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Good morning, beloved. Look at all the young people here. Isn't that a blessing? Old people, too, but... People being nurtured in the truth of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We older folks rejoice in that. We began a study two weeks ago in the book of Exodus. And we spent some time pointing out the fact that the text here uh, doesn't really begin with the word, uh, these are. Um, Great translation. That's just to say that... uh, In the original, it actually begins with the conjunction and, that is, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, showing us that uh, this is not something new, okay? The Exodus, instead, um, serves as a sequel to the book of Genesis. It's one of five books in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. Um, this, so this is part two of the history of mankind, not just mankind in general, but most specifically Abraham and his descendants as the Lord here begins to carry out the patriarchal promise, his promise, by means here of redeeming Abraham's seed out of Egypt. And this reminds us as we looked at last time, that oftentimes in God's plans and the outworking of those plans, it seems as though nothing is making sense. Going to get a witness to this. And here in the text, God, who long ago made a promise to Abraham, that promise seems to once again be under threat. What did God say to Abraham long before this? Your descendants will be more than the stars of heaven. And here, that promise is threatened under a nervous monarch. The most powerful man at this time in the world. Now, Moses, the author, makes clear in this passage that What's going on here is much more than a monarch looking over his kingdom, seeking to consolidate control over a particular nation so as to keep them, that is, 
uh, the Hebrew people from becoming a threat by their ever-increasing population. This record is history of a story with much greater dimensions than that. On the surface, it is a battle between Pharaoh, an ancient king in Egypt, and the people of Israel. But ultimately, it is a battle of cosmic proportions. That is, an attack of Satan on the promised deliverer who was to come out of Israel. Much more than Moses as the leader, as the promised deliverer, but the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an account about the struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. See, Satan knows the word of God. Satan knows the word of God, and he listened to God when God said that he would bring forth a deliverer that would crush the head of Satan, then in the process his heel would be bruised. And this particular record is an important episode in that struggle. This is a key episode, actually. A key episode of Satan's attempt to thwart the purposes of God while Almighty God, in His sovereignty, is bringing about blessing for His people and indeed, beloved, for the whole earth. He is sovereign. And his promises will come to pass. But not without struggle. Not without conflict. So there's a principle here for all believers of all time. A principle that we don't like any more than Israel liked here in the Old Testament. And that is, we must go through suffering. We must pass through conflict in order to enter into glory. The Lord Jesus Christ had to hang on a cross. Okay? The Lord Jesus Christ had to hang on a cross before there could be Resurrection Sunday. The common lot of everyone in here is struggle. We share in this. We share in this conflict with these Old Testament saints. Even though we have been sovereignly rescued, we're connected to these saints of old under the same conflict, albeit, beloved, with much, much greater revelation than they had. Much greater. We know who the promised seed is and how he fulfilled the promise of crushing the head of the serpent. Now, oftentimes, the struggle, this conflict, this battle for us, uh, for the most part, I'd say most often, consists of an inward attack of the enemy. Inward. Where all the while, we also still at the same time, you know, giving us doubts, discouragement, disappointment, you know, as a Christian. Uh, maybe we listen to words of condemnation that do not come from God. They come from the enemy of God, the arch enemy of God. And at the same time, we still have to battle remaining sin within us. Amen? That's a struggle. Okay? That's a conflict. And we wait for this day of glory. But here, here in the text, this is a struggle that sets the stage for the great exodus. 
this great exodus to take place. And here we witness, before this great exodus, rising persecution under a new Egyptian regime who's long forgotten Joseph. And here's a pharaoh, a leader, a monarch, a king, attempting to constrict the population growth of Israel first by inflicting heavy labor upon the men of Israel. Hoping, no doubt, hoping perhaps for a high mortality rate amongst the men. Verses 13 and 14, notice it says, they ruthlessly worked them. That comes from a word that means to break or to fracture. To work them so hard as to decrease their life expectancy, perhaps to bring about impotence within the men. Driving them or forcing them hard in manual labor, even perhaps doing work that animals were respected, expected to do. Yet, as Pharaoh here attempts to thwart the growth of God's people, it's his plan that is thwarted. And when the first plan of ruthless labor doesn't work, he plots another scheme born out of his paranoia, and that is an extermination policy set into order to kill the Hebrew baby boys at birth. Plan B. So here then, as always, God's plan and Pharaoh's plan are diametrically opposed. God's plan and the world's plan have been, always will be, diametrically opposed. Showing for us this. This is what you want to get in your mind as we begin here this morning. This shows us Almighty God above, a false God below, and God's people in between. Deity above, deviousness below, and the disciples of God in the middle. Such is life to this day. Now, for three plus centuries from the time of Joseph, God's sovereign hand, just in these first, okay, seven verses, eight verses, God's sovereign hand has been evident every step of the way, right here in every verse. Yet, Moses, who's the author, holds God's name, doesn't mention the name of God till verse 17 when he begins to talk about fear. They feared God. Now, fear for the Christian can be a bad thing, Fear for the Christian can be a good thing. In Romans 8.15 we read, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Those who are in Christ need not fear God's judgment, for God's judgment has been lifted in Christ. He consumed that judgment. We need not fall back into the fear of God's wrath. Amen? Matthew 10.28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body. You know, this, this is written to his apostles who were going to face great persecution. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's that? The devil? 
Who's he talking about? No, not the devil. He's talking about God. Hebrews 13, 5. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Okay, so fearing man for the Christian, that's a bad thing. That actually can paralyze a believer. However, Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, they despise wisdom, they despise instruction. Any fools here this morning? If you despise wisdom and instruction, you're a fool, according to the word of God. Come out of your folly. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. So that is to say, it is perception, it is proper discernment of these kinds of fear that we want to consider this morning. We want to take from the text this kind of perception, proper discernment of fear like this. And at center stage here are two women of perception who are more afraid of the invisible God than they are of visible Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world, and they're standing between the two of them. Two women who had every reason to fear this king also realized that cowardice is contempt of God. So here they stand in the midst of a battle. And the cosmic dimension of the battle recorded here in Exodus, okay, the primary cause of that battle is Satan always attempting to foil God's plan. It's the same war that's been raging since Genesis 3.15, beloved. The principle of which rings true for us to this very day. For in Ephesians 6, when you read about the whole armor of God, what do we read? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, ultimately, beloved, ultimately, let me digress for a moment. It's very important to understand that that cosmic treason was quenched on the cross, which spelled doom of Satan and his minions of fallen angels. Don't forget that. This is a defeated foe that we're talking about here. Colossians 2.15, Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. You don't have to be you know, running around fearing the devil. Fear God and you'll be fine. He, by triumphing over them in him. That is, Satan was thrown down to earth and bound. Yes, he's bound. Bound from what? He's bound from deceiving the nations. Because ever since then, the gospel has unlocked the darkened hearts of many from throughout all nations. That's what he's bound from. The gospel's more powerful than Satan, who's defeated. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the works of the devil. And ever since that victorious moment... We read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 that the dragon, that Satan, the serpent becomes this red dragon. This is pictorial. This is symbolism. He became, a, he became furious, the woman, with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's the church. On those, notice, 
who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What's that? That is those who fear God with a reverential fear and trust in God through Christ. Thus the reason, beloved, that we must don daily the whole armor of God. Since the struggle of this defeated foe and and his legions will not see its conclusion until the Lord returns. Okay, this is a side note that will lead us right back into this text. So for us, beloved, unlike Israel at the time, this is a matter of the already but not yet nature of Christ's work on the cross. Oscar Coleman in his uh, book, Christ in Time, came out in 1964, used World War II as an analogy. This is very important for application to us this morning, so make sure you listen. And what he does is he uses the analogy with regard to the Normandy invasion of June 6, 1944, known as what day? The day, which means the day. Securing victory, which preceded the day, victory day, by almost a year, which means there were ongoing battles for another 11 months during World War II, from June 6th. 1944, for another 11 months, there was D-Day, but until V-Day, there were ongoing battles. But that victory day was possible only because of D-Day. So Coleman, as well as a modern theologian, G.K. Beale, both refer to Jesus' first coming, especially his work on the cross and his empty tomb, as D-Day, while his second coming will be V-Day capturing well the idea of the already and not yet nature of Jesus' work. Are you with me? So just as D-Day guaranteed an eventual V-Day in World War II, so too the first coming of Christ guarantees the fullness of the victory, the fullness of renewal that will come at the return of Christ. V-Day. So the conflict's the same, but yet it's different at the same time. That's the point. For us, who are in Christ. Okay, now, until then, there's a struggle. The primary cause of which is this furious, defeated dragon known as Satan and his forces. The secondary cause are people who hate God. Politics. Nations. Wars. Threats and persecution of God's people of all kinds, right? That's the secondary cause. So the secondary cause here in our text is a pharaoh who decides to kill off the male children in an effort to squash God's plan to bless these people. But here again, his plan will be thwarted by women. We're talking about two women here who serve as midwives. Ancient midwives were usually unmarried, perhaps widowed, and they were the weakest people, viewed as the weakest in society. And they're pressed here by Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, to kill innocent, helpless baby boys, to commit infanticide. 
This is where these women stand. And here we see the courage of fear, the courage of fear of two women who feared God and loved God more than their own lives, prepared to do whatever God required them to do. Two women. Two disciples of the Most High, pressed by a devious man under the sovereign deity of their Lord, of their creator, God's people, ordered here by a false god, Pharaoh was viewed as a god, to defy the plan and the will of the one true God. You'll face nothing less than this in principle. You know, we might look at this account and think it to be incredibly archaic. Unusually horrific. Midwives, hard-pressed by a pharaoh. And granted, these two midwives probably were overseeing hundreds of other midwives. There was a lot of Jews. There was a lot of Hebrew people in this place at this time. And what was their job? To help bring in new life. These women were preservers of life who are now ordered to destroy life. And you know what? This story is no more horrific than what occurs in China today, where forced abortion limits one child per family, or euthanization around the world, killing of the elderly and the weak. Euthanasia is just a fancy word for murder. And right here in America, millions of babies are aborted on demand. Abortions that are funded by the state, abortion is just another fancy term for murder. Doctors who are supposed to be dedicated to the preservation of life destroy innocent life. Family planning. Reproductive health centers are modern terms for murder assistance. Now, some who I know, probably not here, but who listen online, who really don't like us that much, but they remain nosy and they listen online, um, claim to be Christian, who would take issue with that comparison. But it's likely because they allow their liberal politics to guide their theology. One word for them, as you listen online. (laughs) Repent. (laughs) Pull your head out of the sand and start seeing with a biblical theology. So, Pharaoh, is he wicked? Yeah, he's wicked, he's evil. But he's no more evil or wicked than anyone in our day. Than anyone in our nation. Now, the approach, the approach and circumstances in our day might be a bit more subtle. But the issue is the same. Man has not changed, beloved. We have not changed. It's Christ who changes people. It's Christ who changes philosophy. It's Christ who changes erroneous theology. So in here in the midst of this evil atrocity, these two women express the courageousness of fear. They put into action, beloved, the words, the fear of the Lord. They put into action the phrase, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Right here. So, as Moses, remember, he's the author, and he records this years after the Exodus. He records the names, notice, of these two women in verse 15. He records God's name in verse 
17, which here is the plural noun Elohim, that he is the most high God whose character and attributes are multifaceted. Conveying the depth and and the richness of the being of this one true God in the midst of a land that was full of false gods, as ours is to this day. Everything ascribed to to, to deity finds its fullness in him, the one whom these women feared. Now, what's interesting is that although the Egyptians viewed Pharaoh as, as God, as divine, Moses doesn't even mention his name. Okay, Pharaoh's not a name, it's a title. And scholars and historians You'd have to do a great deal of digging here to speculate which particular pharaoh this was. Moses doesn't even care to mention his name. I should say God cares not by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Moses to mention his name. Because it don't matter. So here is Elohim, the one true God, and one thought to be divine, who goes unnamed, and two seemingly, okay, seemingly, Insignificant women, both mentioned by name, Shifra and Pua, and their God, who dwell under the authority of their God, pressed by a false God below, to attempt to thwart God's will and God's word. So they play a significant part, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, which includes us to this day. For without them, humanly speaking, there would be no exodus. Because there wouldn't be that many left to exit. Amen. A devious plan thwarted by two women as God once again chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. You feel weak? Do you feel insignificant? I can't even say the word. Insignificant? Man, I feel insignificant many times, but God yet uses this fool to confound those who claim to be so mighty or appear to be so mighty. Amen? Two midwives. You can stand here as a believer. Verse 17, but the midwives, there's an introduction for you, but the midwives, verse 17, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So here they stand before their sovereign Lord and king, who's viewed uh, between their sovereign Lord and this king who's viewed as Lord or as sovereign fearing the one true God as they do, as they do, there's going to be fallout. The consequence is conflict. What did Jesus say to his apostles, to his disciples? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You follow Jesus, there's conflict, struggle. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, verse 18. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, 
why have you done this? And let the male children live. Pharaoh brings these women in, women in and he asks, I still hear the cry of male babies. Right? This is like, you know, Samuel when he told King Saul to annihilate all the Amalekites. He didn't carry out God's plan to kill them all, to kill all their livestock. Samuel comes, confronts him. He says, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears that I hear? And then he went and just broke out sword, finished the job. Verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, um, because the Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Hmm. Okay, now Exodus, the book of Exodus, which records the delivering of ancient Israel from the bondage of Egypt, also records the Ten Commandments, one of which is, you shall not lie. (laughs) Now, some commentators, before I prepare every week, I read numerous commentaries and Some commentators very kindly try to get these women off the hook for lying. They say things like, maybe it was true what they said. Okay, so there's a couple possibilities, so let's look at this possibility. Let's consider this possibility. Possibility number one, they didn't lie. Perhaps by the time they got to many, they really did give birth like that. Right? This actually did happen a few times like this, so they report the whole as this, a kind of uh, half-truth. We've all been in situations like this. So you could answer the question. It's one of those situations where, you know, you could answer the question uh, uh, one of many ways. I mean, I've experienced this traveling abroad. I've traveled quite a bit over the last decade, and as you go through airports, and uh, visa control, and all this type of thing, people ask, who are you, and why are you here? And there's a number of ways that you can answer that, depending on who's framing the question. If a pastor meets me at the airport, and he's waiting there, he says, who are you? Because he doesn't, he's never seen my face. I said, I'm John, I'm a fellow pastor, fellow brother. Right? That's how I answer him. If it's a passport control official, I might say that, oh, I'm a missionary. Um, I'm a speaker, okay? That's another way to answer that. Um, If it's some envoy or civil public servant in a country that is more hostile to the gospel, and they ask, why have you applied for this visa? I might say, um, I'm a humanitarian, which I am, withholding information, rather than saying, oh, I'm here to train pastors, how to exegete scripture and exposit scripture and to teach them apologetics so they can break down radical Islam. (laughs) No, I just withhold some details. So that's one possibility with these women. Possibility two, they deliberately lied. If I was going to bet my money, number two. They intentionally, intentionally attempted to hide the truth from the Pharaoh. He asks here, why have you done this? They answer, um, uh, uh, Egyptian women are whiny, they're wimpy, they labor long. The Hebrew women give birth, pop out babies just like that. (laughs) 
again, reading some commentaries, Augustine concluded that these women were guilty of deceit. A thousand years later, John Calvin, influenced by Augustine, wrote this in his commentary. Some assert that this kind of lie is not reprehensible because they think that there's no fault where deceit for purpose of injury is used. Calvin held this to be opposed to the nature of God and therefore sinful and a very displeasing thing. Think about this. In Joshua 2, by the way, I'm not advocating lying, by the way. We'll get to that. Kids, children. In Joshua 2, spies are sent into, into uh, Jericho. Okay, the king gets words of it. He gets words, words of the fact that, that this prostitute is hiding some of these uh, spies. So uh, he sends people to inquire of Rahab. Um, she has them hiding on her ro- roof. She looks at the king's men in the eye and says, no spies here. Is that a lie? Blatant lie. When we get to James 2.22, 2.25 rather, Rahab is commended for a faith that was evidenced by her works. Now, some try to argue that she was commended for her faith, but not her works because she lied. But James' entire argument is that true faith is expressed through works using Rahab as an example. So to separate faith from works in James with the example of Rahab, I believe is a very difficult, if not impossible, thing to do. All that to say, this story is set up to show us that this is a lie. Okay? Okay, so question, are there circumstances where where lying is the best option in order to save, in order to save, in order to spare or protect the life of another? Okay, they they lied in a life or death situation. Okay, this is a lie, beloved, of circumstances. This, I would call, as it's been referred to, is a lie of necessity. This is not lying merely for the sake of sparing your own neck. Or because you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance. They looked Pharaoh in the eye and they said, "Eh, the women are vigorous. They're not like the the Egyptian whiny women. There's nothing we can do about it. So, to conclude that these women who feared God, who loved God more than they loved their own lives, were doing something displeasing or reprehensible, I don't believe is a valid conclusion, and therefore would disagree with Augustine and Calvin. Well, who are you to disagree with Calvin or Augustine? I'm just a man who disagrees with Augustine and Calvin on this matter. Right During World War II, Nazis stormed the home of Corrie ten Boom in Holland, who, their family, were hiding Jews behind a fake wall. They march in and they say, Are you hiding Jews in this house? Question, how would you answer that? Fathers, protectors, heads of homes, providers. Someone breaks into your home in the middle of the night. Tie you, bind you, beat you. You were able to hide your family. And as they ransack your home and are ready to choke the life out of you, and because of all the photos and portraits on the wall and say, hey, you have a wife and children, where are they? What are you going to do? Choke me out. 
Because if you break into my home and I don't get you with my Louisville slugger to crack a home run, <laughs> I'll try that first. I'm not giving up my family. Look, it's obvious they lied. Courageously, faithfully, and with conviction. Not fearing man, but fearing God. Now, Genesis records some big lies. Right? The book of Genesis, we read of blatant lies that God rebukes. Abraham lied. Isaac lied. Rebecca and others lied. So let me be clear, God hates lying. Proverbs 6.17, God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Now, Abraham, remember he lied, he was before another Pharaoh, and he lied and said that Sarah was his sister. Looking to save his own skin. And while he was looking to save his own skin, he actually put his wife into the place of great danger because of his lies. He was wrong. God rebuked him. Isaac was wrong. Rebecca was wrong. Here, here, it was for the fear of God that these women were courageous enough to resist Pharaoh's order. So, that is to say, these are exceptional circumstances. They're not the lies of convenience. They, they risked their necks to spare the lives of those innocent babies lying to an evil despot. You know, one of the major themes in Exodus is this. Whom will you serve? God or Pharaoh? Whom will you obey? God or Pharaoh? Whom will you fear? God or Pharaoh. In our day, who will you fear? God or political correctness? Scripture is clear. All believers, without doubt, are called upon to obey and subject themselves to governing authorities. Amen? We are to be subject to to govern authorities, governing authorities because they're placed there by God. However, the believer is never, ever called upon to obey any command of the government that violates the word or the law of God. Amen. So we see this. Now, when God's people are pressed, standing between God and a deviant ruler, a political system, an employer the believer has no choice but to fear God rather than man. That's the principle we want to take away. You know, if you're called to cut corners, you might be placed in a position at work and your boss presses you to cut corners to lie. Right? Fear God. Even if you lose your job. So here's exactly what we see with these women. Courageously faithful women. They stand and they're resisting the ploys of the serpent, the primary cause behind the secondary cause, which is a pharaoh. That they stand and disobey. They stand in disobedience to him because this is contrary to the will and the word of God. 
So, verse 20. So, God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So, as a result, we witness God's favor upon these midwives. God commends them. He rewards them, verse 21, notice. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Wow. Again, typically in ancient culture, <coughs> midwives served as midwives <coughs> because they had no family of their own. Excuse me. Because they had no family of their own or they were widowed. Moses reports in the account the blessings of God on these faithful midwives, not blessing them, beloved, for lying. Okay, not blessing them for lying, but blessing their courage in refusing to do what was wrong. Pharaoh ordered these midwives to destroy households. They refused and saved households, and God gives them a household of their own. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, says the Proverbs. Now, does it always turn out like this for God's people? When we obey? Under pressure like this? No. Sometimes we have to stand ready and say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your gods. Right? That was a big fiery trial. You're not going to walk through any fiery furnace, literal, stoked up seven times. At least I don't think so. (laughs) Yet, even the most minor trials that we face in this conflict, in this struggle today, provide us opportunity for our Lord to be glorified in the midst of it. So it doesn't matter how small it is, amen? So since the midwives here refuse to carry out this ploy, God blesses them. And then Pharaoh now turns to an open plan of genocide. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Let's try plan C. So Pharaoh calls for all the people of Egypt to engage in the extermination of Israelite boys. Mass murder by drowning. But unbeknownst to him, under God's sovereign hand, under God's sovereign rule and reign, he has sealed his own fate and written the sentence for his own people. Having ordered all the baby boys of Israel to be drowned in the Nile, it'll only be a few decades that the armies of Egypt will be drowned in the Red Sea. And this Pharaoh will be dead before that. The judgment of God will come upon this nation through the staff of one named Moses. 
the representative of God in this account, who in the very next passage, notice, will be spared from the waters of the Nile, saved and raised in Pharaoh's home. Did you get this? Who's sovereign, by the way, as a reminder? He'll be raised in Pharaoh's home. Spared from this. And this is a reminder, beloved, that God pours out his sovereign blessing on those who fear him and pours out judgment on all people who don't. This is what Exodus provides for us. This is just a foreshadowing of final judgment on the world. And this blessing comes through conflict, does it not? So, to wrap up, we, beloved, today, we are connected with these saints in conflict. We're connected with these people, these people of God, and we're also connected with these people whose conviction is to fear the Lord. Two connections for us, conflict and fear of the Lord. That's the point of Hebrews 11, isn't it? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, people of saving faith from throughout time who have done extraordinary things for the Lord, who've done extraordinary things for the people of the Lord by way of extraordinary power. That is extraordinary power. The power of God provided in time of need. So we're connected. The baton is in our hand. The call is to run well, just as they did, those who feared the Lord, women like Shifra and Pua. Amen? May we run well, having a fear that leads to faithfulness. Because, as we can see, Pharaoh's power was no match for the faith and the courage of these women. Amen? Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack.